a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I trust that you're a truth seeker of some some shape. Yeah, well, you've come to the right place. Not that I'm the fountain of truth. I'm really not. God is the fountain of truth. But I am definitely a guy who is uh, willing to spend a little bit of time cutting through all the, the smoke screen, the obfuscation, the distortion, and flat-out uh, misdirection that's aimed at us every single day to keep us from getting a little too close to the truth. So why do we do this? Well, because uh, even though I may be young and naive and uh, not really understand everything all that well, I do understand that freedom matters. In fact, it's, it's one of the most important things. It, it may be the most important thing in terms of without freedom to make your own choices, to exercise your own conscience, conscious rather, conscience rather, or to uh, think clearly and independently for yourself. Essentially, you become Nothing more than an object to be directed by someone else. That's not acceptable. So I'm encouraging you. Rise up. Think for yourself. Claim the prerogative to own your own worldview. And be skeptical. Be very healthily skeptical about everything that you hear, see, or read. Now, having said that, we've got some fun stuff to talk about today. This may seem like a very insensitive thing to point out, but... There's a clear advantage for kids who grow up with parents who are married. Oh, I know. What a a novel thing. If only only someone would have figured this out. If only it could have been, I don't know, a part of human history from, you know, the time that we started recording human history. And if only every civilization, whether big or small or primitive or advanced or religious or non-religious, if only they had somehow been able to figure out a pattern like a a lifelong, permanent relationship between a man and a woman, and then uh, that relationship being the foundation in which they raise the children that they create. Yeah, I know, it's a radical thing. This is a totally new idea. I just came up with it myself, as a matter of fact. Surprised somebody else hasn't thought of this first, but you would think... This would just be common sense, and I'll, I'll, I'll turn off the sarcasm here. I want to share with you this uh, article by Karina Trinkle. Did I get that right? No. Trinko. Katrina Trinko. The politically correct reality about what boosts kids' chances for success. She says it's one simple trick, but there's a catch. It's not a very politically correct reality. Simply put, to optimize any kid's chances at success, he needs to grow up with married parents. Now, a new book titled The Two-Parent Privilege, How Americans Stopped Getting Married and Started Falling Behind shows just how starkly a child's life can be affected based on whether he grows up with married parents or a single parent. By the way, if, you, if your first reaction is, well, this doesn't sound very fair to single parents, please understand this is not to, to attack them or to make their lives more difficult. It's acknowledging a reality, though, that the more stable, the more desirable situation is two parents committed to each other, working as a team to raise the kids. 
Author Melissa Kearney says mounds of social science evidence shows how the odds of graduating high school, getting a college degree, and having high earnings in adulthood are substantially lower for children who grew up in a single mother home. The odds of becoming a single parent are also substantially higher for children who grow up with a single mother, again, illustrating the compounding nature of inequality. So it's not only that lacking two parents makes it harder for some kids to go to college and lead a comfortable life in the aggregate. It also undermines social mobility and perpetuates inequality across generations. Now, this is uh, from Kearney, who is a professor in the Department of Economics at University of Maryland. Now, this is hardly a popular message in 2023. As of 2019, over a third of kids do not live with their married parents. That's according to Kearney. That's a number that's substantially grown in recent decades. Do you realize in 1980, 77% of kids lived with their married parents, meaning about a fifth of kids did not. Now, of course, there are plenty of single parents or divorced parents who aren't so by choice. So whether that's due to abuse or unexpected pregnancies or death or other factors, still the growing numbers suggest that overall our society is more comfortable with the idea of single parenthood and or divorced parents. So in an era where judgment is the worst sin of all and it's crucial to let people you know, live their truth, it's not easy to speak honestly about how kids really do benefit from married parents. But apparently the data is clear. The ideal should be that kids are raised by married parents. By the way, if you wonder, well, why is it so important that they be married? Why if they're just together? That's a tough one to explain, but uh, I think the best explanation I heard is for the same reason that uh, you can't take off in an F-16 with the cockpit still open. Or you can't, you could take off with it probably if you go slow enough, but there's going to come a point where if you want to really achieve the performance potential, if you want to to reach the potential of what that aircraft can do, you've got to close the canopy. You can't leave it open just in case I need out. Same way with a marriage. When, when parents are committed to each other, that creates a stability that gets them through tough times as well as good times. But apparently there are several myths out there about why children of single parents struggle more. Or de- there are several myths that need to be debunked about uh, why children of single parents struggle more. Number one myth is marriage is just a piece of paper. Kids don't need their parents to be formally married. But the reality is most couples who are cohabitating and not married in the U.S. are not stable couples. They're not going to be together for the full 18 years of a child's life. They're just choosing to live a bohemian life without all the legal paperwork. According to Kearney, U.S. children are much more likely to experience two or three parental partnerships by age 15 as compared to children in other Western nations. I know that doesn't sound like a very big deal, but but it is. Myth number two, children of non-married parents face difficulties because they were likely it's likely they were conceived by younger adults without college degrees and the advantages that confers. You know what the reality is? Even among single mothers with college degrees, there's a big difference in the outcomes for their children versus the children of married parents. Here are the numbers. About 28% of kids of a single mother with a bachelor's degree get a bachelor's degree by age 25. Now, in contrast, about 57% of a married mother, 57% of kids with a married mother with a bachelor's degree get their bachelor's degree by age 25. That's pretty significant. Myth number three. 
The reason children of single parents struggle is primarily financial. You know what the reality is? Kearney writes that a child born in a two-parent household with a family income of $50,000 has, on average, better outcomes than a child born in a single-parent household earning the same income. Huh. Kearney speculates that that might be because money isn't the only resource parents need to raise their time. Their kids, rather. Time is a crucial one, and a single parent generally has less time to devote to her children than married parents do. Myth number four If the United States had a more generous welfare system, children of single parents would thrive. Here's the reality. Even in Denmark, a bastion of public welfare that includes free college tuition, universal access to high-quality health care, universal high-quality pre-K, and a generous child care and maternity leave policy, the influence of family background on many child outcomes is about as strong as it is in the U.S., See, parents affect their children's lives and they shape their outcomes in ways that government can't fully make up for. Even if the U.S. safety net were much stronger than it is today, children from two-parent, highly-resourced homes would still be bound to have relative advantages in life. In other words, even if leftists got their wish, their welfare wish list indulged, kids of single parents still would face obstacles, they still would have disadvantages. But Kearney's book also shows it's going to be hard, even if we're willing to pursue uncomfortable conversations about how children should ideally have married parents, to turn back the clock and return to a culture where the vast majority of kids have married parents. So this may not be convenient data, but it's clear. Children do best with married parents. Most parents would do a good deal to help their kids have the best shot at life So don't they deserve to know the most important thing they might do for their future children is to find and stay married to a good spouse? Interesting. It's a great article. Katrina Trinko, again, is the author. This was found on intellectualtakeout.org. And I will include a link in today's show notes at thebrianheidshow.com so you can check this one out for yourself. This is, I mean, it it just seems, it seems like this would be self-evident truth, Right? It shouldn't take some advanced degree or, you know, some other, you know, big epiphany to realize, well, you know, a kid might be better off with a mom and a dad who are married to each other and committed. And yet here we are, struggling as a society. Go figure. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Let's talk about education. There is a bottom-up reformation that's taking place in education as more parents start to exercise their right of choice in how their kids are educated. COVID, by the way, really helped this along. If there was a silver lining to all the lockdowns and the school closures and the mandates and everything... It was that parents finally started to wake up and realize, you know what? We can do this. We can either do, we can homeschool, we can private school, we can charter school. We can do something other than just send our kids off to the, you know, public school daycare. But this is making 
People who like control get very, very nervous, as Carrie McDonald puts it from the Foundation for Economic Education. As education decentralizes, those who like control are nervous. She says it's no surprise that those who favor top-down control of education are feeling anxious about the current bottom-up education transformation. Carrie says as more parents gain the opportunity to abandon a compulsory schooling assignment for other options, including homeschooling and micro-schooling, it's no surprise that those who favor top-down control feel anxious about this bottom-up education transformation. And this nervousness, by the way, is occurring on both ends of the political spectrum. On the political left, the Washington Post did some pearl-clutching last week around the possibility that no government official will ever check on what or how well homeschoolers are being taught. Wow, that's classic statism right there. If it's not under the state's direct supervision, it's by definition out of control. Now, on the political right, Kerry points out, the Fordham Institute expressed similar concerns about hybrid homeschoolers and micro-schoolers. Quote, to ensure that those children receive the education they deserve, it will require policymakers to craft smart laws to govern these new institutions. Now, Kerry says there can be a strong desire, especially in public policy, to control others, by imposing on them such a specific set of, a specific set of uh, beliefs or preferences. In a free society, with such a breathtaking diversity of beliefs and preferences, we have to resist this urge for centralized control. She says we must, as Foundation for Economic Education founder Leonard Reed wrote, have a faith in free people and allow individuals to make the choices that are right for them. They may make choices that we personally dislike or find objectionable, and they may similarly frown upon our choices. We don't need to like each other's choices, but we should embrace the freedom to choose. Now, the freedom to choose in education is becoming a greater reality for many families, especially as more states introduce or expand education choice programs that enable families to access a portion of state-allocated education funding to use toward tuition at private schools, micro-schools, which are more like a modern one-room schoolhouse, and various homeschool programs, as well as toward educational therapies, tutoring services, and learning supplies. So according to Ed Choice, which was founded in 1996 by Nobel Prize-winning economist Milton Friedman and his economist wife Rose to promote parental choice in education, Roughly 20 million students, or about 36% of the overall U.S. K-12 student population, are now, or soon will be, eligible for a choice program that enables them to exit an assigned district school for a private education option that better meets their needs. Wow, I'll bet that sends a shiver of fear up the spine of, you know, the, the closest uh, teachers union rep. Most parents, writes Carrie McDonald, are fleeing school districts for these other options. Now, the Washington Post recently released a detailed analysis showing that U.S. homeschooling numbers have increased more than 50% over the past six years and that a dramatic rise in homeschooling at the onset of the pandemic has largely sustained itself through the 2022-2023 academic year, defying predictions that most families would return to schools that have dispensed with mask mandates and other COVID-19 restrictions. Now, Carrie says many of these homeschoolers are enrolling in affordable micro-schools that offer the freedom and flexibility of homeschooling within the structure of a drop-off, teacher-led learning environment. Crossroads Trail, Crossroad Trails Educational Center near Kansas City is an example of this. 
last launched last year by Tara Cassidy, who was a public school teacher for 17 years. Crossroads Trails is a full-time, low-cost micro-school that's now at capacity with over 30 students who are all legally recognized as homeschoolers. Cassidy told uh, Carrie McDonald in a recent podcast interview, our goal was to let parents be in control. I learned as a mom who was searching for other options that what my kid needed wasn't out there. So that was my main goal. Get what your family needs. Needs to be available to you. So, more families than ever now have that opportunity to assess their educational needs and make their choices accordingly. Carrie says these parents are increasingly choosing personalized, decentralized education options, such as homeschooling and microschooling, often precisely because they break from one-size-fits-all standard schooling. They want the variety, customization, and the abundance in education that they enjoy in all other areas of their lives that are not controlled by government. As Leonard Reed wrote in his classic 1964 essay, The Case for the Free Market in Education, while one cannot know of the brilliant steps that would be taken by millions of education-conscious parents, were they and not the government, to have the educational responsibility, one can imagine the great variety of cooperative and private enterprises that would emerge. Kerry says we're now seeing that great variety of cooperative and private enterprises created by everyday entrepreneurs like Cassidy, to meet the diverse needs and preferences of millions of families across the U.S. Top-down, government-run schooling is being steadily replaced by bottom-up, decentralized learning models. And while this may make defenders of the schooling status quo on both the political left and right feel nervous, Kerry says it should make the rest of us feel happy and hopeful. I would say it does, Kerry, most definitely. <laughs> it's it's uh, giving us a sense of, you know, finally... We can have some say in what's happening with our kids instead of being told, shut up and sit down. You're not the professional here. We know what's best for your kids. And it really does make the control freaks nervous. Last year, school choice came very, very close in my home state of Idaho. And it was a couple of rhinos, maybe only one or two rhinos, that actually tanked the measure. And they did it at the behest of teachers' unions and at the behest of the public school establishment. And, you know, politicians just can't help themselves. They want to pander, well, you know, look at all this that we've done. We have created jobs and we're paying teachers more. And they, they put hundreds of millions of dollars into government education. I know I should have said public, but I'm calling it what it really is. Government-run education. And yet it's never enough. No sooner does the state legislature, you know, apportion, again, tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars. Not, our, not only are school districts running, you know, surpluses to the tunes of tens of millions of dollars. But immediately, you know, now comes the next imperative. Well, you know, but uh, special ed programs, why, there's a $56 million shortfall, and we need more money. When are we ever going to give students enough? You know, there are good teachers out there. My wife is one of them. And they're not all about, well, we just need better benefits, and we need more money, man. Don't you know who we are? The bureaucracy wants to sustain itself. It's all about the system. Now, the teachers, I believe, in good faith, are there trying to teach the kids. I don't think, I don't think the majority of them are activists, and they're certainly not, you know, 
teachers, union reps. But for politicians, this is like a huge, huge feather in their cap when they can go, well, look at all the money I gave to education. Look how I support, you know, the government-run schooling system. When parents say, but we want choice. Well, you can have choice. You just have to choose within the system. We have lots of choices in our government-controlled system. And that always seems to be the place where they come back to. You can have every choice you want, but it's got to be within our system. Well, that's really not much of a choice at all, is it? So I'm grateful for those states that are able to pass school choice. Maybe Idaho will get it, you know, in the next go around. But the bottom line is, I'm okay with the control freaks having a hard time with this. If they'd like, I could come and sit with them, maybe hold their hand. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. Okay, I'm going to go into some dangerous territory here just because uh, I know this is going to rub some people the wrong way. And other people are going to feel like, oh, no, this is rubbing me the right way. Please keep it up. I don't consider myself, you know, part of the MAGA crowd. Yes, I'm opposed to much of the power structure that's currently in place. Yes, I believe that uh, patriotic Americans should be standing up and, uh, and they should be embracing, you know, their own sovereignty and they should be embracing their own freedom. And right now, MAGA seems to be about the only movement that is really doing that. J.B. Shirk has an article, this is published on intellectualtakeout.org, about MAGA is the new sons and daughters of liberty. Now, when I saw that headline, my first reaction was, oh boy. You know, is this Trump fanboy stuff? But it's not. And I want you to hear what J.B. Shirk has to say. This is not about pushing Trump. This is not about ending our prayers in the name of Donald Trump. It's about recognizing who's willing to stand up versus who isn't. He says, in 1765, American colonists cheerfully embraced the sovereignty of their young English king. They celebrated his June 4th birthday with bonfires, bell ringing, public speeches, and joyful feasts. They were proud to be loyal subjects of the crown. Eleven years later, Americans honored King George III's birthday by carrying out mock funeral processions, and they saved their fireworks and celebratory cannon blasts for their new Independence Day, July 4th. So from happy and obedient servants of the king to revolutionaries who cheered for his death amid the rousing beat of fifes and drums, all in the span of a short decade. So what happened? Well, the Stamp Act happened. A series of of, of parliamentary actions that sought to levy taxes on the American colonies had the inadvertent effect of of igniting latent revolutionary fervor. So in unintentionally creating an us-them dynamic between Mother England and her children, Parliament helped forge a distinctly American identity. A handful of new fiscal regulations lit a squib that would later explode into a history-shattering rebellion, such as the power of any movement championing liberty as its cause. I kind of like where he's going here. Shirk says, of all the reasons Marxist globalists despise and fear America, it is our country's historic foundation in personal liberty that tops the list. After all, what is liberty's natural foe, if not the state? 
So he says, for government to champion personal liberty, it must submit to the public's will and shackle its own powers. For government to applaud individual freedom, it must acknowledge that the state's authority is freedom's antipode. So for this very reason, government agents use their resources to redefine freedom into something that only the state can provide. We will free you from crime, poverty, hateful speech, and the consequences of your own actions. All you must do is bow down to your government and do exactly as we say. Now, when governments successfully redefine freedom as gifts from the state, then people are hypnotized into handing over their liberty for a lifetime of indentured servitude. Slumbering citizens do their master's bidding. They celebrate their king's birthday as if it were one of their own. And then someone in the mold of a Sam Adams or Paul Revere comes along, lights a match, and says, See this? It is liberty. Watch what happens when it catches fire in the hearts of men. Old orders burn and rotten institutions implode. So why is it the Make America Great Again movement is such a threat to the establishment class in D.C.? Well, J.B. Shirk says it's because it's a modern-day rebirth of the sons and daughters of American liberty. He says it represents a group of Americans allied, irrespective of race or class, who hear the growing sounds of fifes and the steady beat of drums. Its revolutionary fervor echoes that of the American colonists to transform themselves from obedient servants to patriotic heroes in a few short years. Its rallying cry promises the cry rather promises the restoration of power to the people and the end of an unprincipled, unconstitutional state. MAGA is that squib that has the potential to turn the world upside down again. And every deep state parasite feeding at DC's taxpayer-funded trough fears that its promise will one day come true. Now, J.B. Shirk raises a very interesting question at this point. Why do the FBI and Department of Justice treat patriotic Americans as enemies and anti-American zealots as friends? Well, he says it's because the federal government understands that a movement for American liberty is the only real threat to an all-powerful state. Think about that for just a moment. Not China. Not Islamic Jihad, not Iran. Freedom is the eternal enemy of tyranny. And Washington, D.C. is filled to the brim with tyrants. They hate and they fear the people who want to be free. Now, J.B. Shirk says this is also why the private corporations running the Democrat and Republican parties have disagreed about very little ever since the early 20th century progressivism uh, infiltrated both. Shirk says, is it not strange that a nation birthed in liberty is represented by two political parties that never speak of liberty? Our two-party system has essentially driven the American people from power and handed control to a small cabal of central bank money printers, corporate titans, and intelligence community chiefs. Protections for personal freedom have been eliminated from political discourse to make room for more important national priorities, you know, like policing speech, grooming children to mutilate their bodies, and dividing Americans against each other by race. That sounds about right. 
J.B. Shirk says, establishment Democrats and Republicans fundamentally agree on matters of war, taxation, regulation, redistribution, endless immigration, and the international architecture for a new world order. They might pretend otherwise, but they have both enabled the creation of unconstitutional systems engaged in viewpoint discrimination, censorship, and mass surveillance. They squabble over which corporate donors will get bailouts while ensuring that regular citizens foot the bill. They have together severed the dollar from the security of gold backing while setting the country down a path toward bankruptcy and ruin. Both parties have more or less rejected America's Judeo-Christian cultural foundations in favor of the secular religion of the politically correct state. Think about this. Paul Ryan and Barack Obama agree about almost everything. Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer agree about almost everything. George Bush and Bill Clinton agree about almost everything. And the one thing about which they most agree is this. They all hate MAGA. If Paul, Barack, Mitch, Chuck, and George and Bill all see MAGA as their enemy, then doesn't that make MAGA the only true opposition party to establishment orthodoxy? When establishment donkeys and elephants all serve the same multinational masters, then isn't the MAGA lion the only beast ferocious enough to resist domestication and break free from America's political zoo? Doesn't any quest for freedom first require a rejection of the uniparty charade? For too many decades, the establishment class that occupies D.C. has worked to deprive Americans of their natural birthright, liberty. While accumulating unjust powers for its privileged members, it has left ordinary Americans with a broken currency, culture, and constitution. In order to avoid the well-deserved wrath of its citizens, the Uniparty instigates racial animosities intended to divide the American people against each other. In order to dilute the public's voice, it floods voter rolls with foreign immigrants. In order to dissolve the bonds of cultural unity, it insists on leaving the border wide open. Exacerbating violent crime and inundating the nation with deadly drugs, the old guard seeks to set an endless string of fires that keep the citizenry distracted. And the heat from these blazes is instead awakening Americans to all they have lost. So Shirk says, if you've ever taken an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, then he says, ask yourself this. Did you take that oath to uphold the Constitution as it is written? Or did you swear allegiance to defend some vainglorious bureaucrat's self-serving reinterpretation? Because there's a huge difference. The Bill of Rights is exceedingly clear and straightforward. Only those with an interest in depriving Americans of all their rights and freedoms will insist that the Constitution's words mean nothing. Theoretical, theoretical, theoretical physicist Edward Teller observed, life improves slowly and goes wrong fast, and only catastrophe is clearly visible. Well, what happens when catastrophe is clearly visible? People begin the hard work of effecting monumental change. When government tyranny can no longer be ignored, people of steadfast character fight for liberation. So for too long, the federal government has betrayed the limiting principles of the Constitution and usurped the powers naturally belonging to the American people. Bad governments do have a tendency to set brush fires of freedom in the minds of men. That's what we see now. So why does the Uniparty hate MAGA? Because MAGA might just be 
Liberty's next spark. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, final segment of today's show, which you can uh, you can check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. These are show notes for November 9th, 2023. Here's the article of the day. This is one that I want you to check out just because when Doug Casey weighs in on a given topic, it's worth hearing what he has to say. I'm not saying you are duty-bound and you must you must believe him and obey everything he says. No, Doug wouldn't want that either. But in this case, he's being interviewed about the imminent bankruptcy of the U.S. government. So that's uh, that's something that's worth thinking about. International man who interviews Doug Casey for this uh, for this article says, everyone knows the U.S. government's been bankrupt for many years, but we thought it might be instructive to see its current cash flow situation. And the point here that you need to take away is that the U.S. government's budget is the biggest in the history of the world, and it's growing at an uncontrollable rate. And they show a chart of a budget for the most recent fiscal year, which had a deficit of nearly $1.7 trillion. Now, before getting into specific items on the budget, they ask Doug Casey, what's your take on the big picture? Listen to what he says. Doug says the biggest expenditure for the U.S. government are so-called entitlements. And it's strange how the word entitlement has been legitimized. Are people really entitled to the government paying for their health, retirement, and welfare? In a moral society, the answer is no. Entitlements destroy personal responsibility, legitimize theft, destroy wealth, and create antagonisms. But the fact is, once people have an entitlement, they come to rely on it, And you can't easily take it away. The Chinese call that breaking somebody's rice bowl. In the case of the American welfare state, it's more of a question of breaking a whipped dog's doggy bowl. And it's a shame. Because many have come to rely on their mother, the state, not entirely through their own fault. The U.S. has become pervasively corrupt. Now, the World Economic Forum, a pox upon them, isn't entirely incorrect when it arrogantly calls most people useless mouths. An increasing number produce absolutely nothing but only consume at the expense of others, courtesy of the state. Now, Doug says there's little doubt in his mind that the government's expenses are going way up as people demand more, while receipts go down as the Greater Depression deepens, which it will as the economy is burdened by ever more taxes, regulations, and currency debasement. And that's on top of the gigantic debt the government and country are buried under. He says, the government reminds me of a poker player on tilt, betting more and more crazily in hope of magic or luck to bail him out. But it always ends badly. He says, we've watched this progression accelerate since at least the 1960s, a slow-motion train wreck. But the inevitable has, inevitable rather has finally turned into the imminent. Now, from here, International Man asks Doug Casey, okay, tell us your thoughts on Social Security, health, Medicare, With an aging population, you know, it seems like it's politically impossible to make any meaningful cuts. On the the contrary, though, spending in these areas is poised to explode. Now, Doug has some harsh reality to, to share here. He says they should be abolished. I've said this many times before, but it bears repeating as often as possible because everybody forgets the most basic of basics. 
Namely, the government as an instrument of force, rather, should be limited to protecting people from physical force and nothing else. Now, that implies a police system to defend people from force within, a military to defend against foreign aggressors, and a court system to allow people to adjudicate disputes without resorting to force. Doug says, I'd further argue that those three things are so important to the conduct of a civil society that they shouldn't be left to the kind of people who inevitably gravitate towards government. But that's, that's a different subject. So looking at these three things that, that were mentioned in particular, Social Security, Health, and Medicare, they're complete disasters. They're fiscally unsound, they'll bankrupt the U.S. government, and therefore bankrupt the country itself, especially with an aging population. So should the government have anything to do with health? No. It's strictly a matter of personal responsibility. Of course, the state believes it owns you like a milk cow. If the cattle can expect food to show up, as will medicine, you know, if they get sick. Government entitlement schemes encourage everyone to try to live at the expense of his neighbors. Doug Casey says they're intrinsically dehumanizing, corrupting, and degrading. They're a bad deal all around. And then, of course, uh, he's asked about the most precarious geopolitical situation since World War II. National defense doesn't seem likely it's going to be cut. Instead, so-called serious defense spending is all but certain to increase. So Doug is asked, well, what's your take? Well, United States defense spending, he says, exceeds that of the next 10 nations combined, including Russia and China. Most of that spending goes into the maw of five major defense companies. A decade or two ago, there were 30 or 40 defense companies, but now they've consolidated. The better to deal with big government. All that defense spending is a provocation to other countries. It's like waving around a giant golden hammer. And they're correctly afraid that everything has started to look like a nail to the U.S. Interest on the debt is also included in this discussion. And then he suggests six things that need to happen. Is there any chance the U.S. can reform and go back to a, to a sustainable basis? And if not, what are the implications? Well, Doug says, look, the U.S. government is bankrupt. It's not just the official $34 trillion. The real number is several times higher considering contingent liabilities, probably closer to $100 trillion. He says this debt is never going to be repaid. But here are six things to imagine, even if serious change is impossible, since the situation is so out of control. Number one, allow for the collapse of all bankrupt entities. No bailouts, subsidies, or guarantees for banks, insurers, corporations, or anything. There will be plenty in the coming years. Bailout money, he says, is always wasted. Most of the real wealth now owned by the bankrupt, ent bankrupt entities will still exist. It will just change ownership. But Doug says at this point, that's not nearly enough. It would be a half measure, a three-foot rope hanging over a 12-foot gap. If you allow the collapse of unprofitable enterprises without changing the conditions that created the problem, recovery is going to be even harder. So, second thing that needs to happen is deregulate. Contrary to what almost everyone thinks, the main purpose of regulation is not to protect consumers, but to protect and to entrench the current order. Regulation prevents new institutions from arising quickly and cheaply. For instance, does the Department of Agriculture 
really need 100,000 employees to regulate fewer than 2 million farms in the U.S.? Abolish it. How about the Department of Energy, created in 1977 to solve a temporary crisis? Has it done anything of value with its 110,000 employees and contractors and $32 billion annual budget? Abolish it. How about the terminally corrupt Bureau of Indian Affairs, which has outlived whatever usefulness it might have had by 100 years? Abolish it. Same with the FTC, SEC, FCC, FAA, DOT, HHS, HUD, Labor, Commerce, and many more which serve little or no useful public purpose. They're not just useless, they're actively destructive. Number three, he says, abolish the Fed. This is the actual engine of inflation. Money is just a medium of exchange and a store of value. You don't need a central bank to have money. In fact, central banks are always destructive. They benefit only the cronies who get their money first. So what would we use as money? Well, he says it doesn't matter as long as it's a commodity that can't be created out of thin air. Gold is the obvious choice. Bitcoin may turn out to be excellent. But the whole idea of a central bank is a swindle. Massive bailouts and optional wars can't be done without it. Suggestion number four, cut taxes by 50%. To start, the economy would boom. The money won't be needed with all the agencies gone, certainly not if the next two points are followed. Number five, he says, default on the national debt. Now, Doug Casey says, I know that's a shocker unless you recall that the debt will never be paid anyway. Why should the next several generations have to pay for the stupidity of their parents? A default sounds dishonorable, and it is in civil society, but government is different. It hasn't been we the people for a long time. It's now a self-dealing behemoth run by cronies. It's like a building with a rotten foundation. Better to bring it down with a controlled demolition than to wait for it to fall unpredictably. Finally, number six, disentangle and disengage. The entanglements the U.S. needs to escape prominently include the U.N. and NATO. Spending could be cut as much as easily by 50%. The U.S. combat troops now in over 100 foreign countries can come home. They're not defending anything but local collaborators who are picking up bad habits and antagonizing the locals. Spending on the military and its sport wars significantly adds to the economy's problems. There is more to that article, by the way. I hope you'll take a look at it. Also, a great article from Todd Hyen on the public's tendency to see what, uh, what government's agenda is as something innocent. That's a tough one that we have to overcome. Well, they're just trying to help us. <laughs> you can check out all these show notes at the thebrianheidshow.com. Again, show notes for November 9th, 2023. This is The Brian Hyde Show.